This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Thomas Nagovin, lecturer for TEDx, author, musician, filmmaker, gallery owner, and historian, having specialized in Art Nouveau for over 20 years. Today we'll be speaking about his book La Pater, Alphon Mucha's Symbolist Masterpiece and the Lineage of Mysticism, which is a book of Christian mysticism artworks by Alphonse Mucha. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Well, let's just start with this. Who was Alphonse Mucha? Alphonse Mucha was an illustrator best known as the quintessential Art Nouveau artist. Art Nouveau was an art movement that came after the Industrial Revolution and was deeply based in nature. The idea that chairs would be carved to look like vines and that everything was meant to be an envelopment of nature in an environment. Uh, And so Alphonse Mucha was a poster designer, jewelry designer, and he today is is probably the most famous French poster artist when we think of French poster art. And his style was so popular in Paris in 1900 that they called it Mucha style when they saw any kind of Art Nouveau. So if your listeners are familiar with like the French subway stations that look like the big plant forms that come up from the ground, the metropolitan stations, that's Art Nouveau. Um, and it's everywhere. If you go to, um, I mean, I guess, it, you know, I, I, you see it. It's one of those things that you might not know the term, but once you see it, you think, oh, I've seen that. Like it gets adopted constantly in films and artworks and, and all kinds of things. But so Alphonse Mucha was uh, at the time the most celebrated artist of that movement. And today... If you look Art Nouveau up in the dictionary, it's his artwork that they would show. So how did he get involved in creating Christian mystical art? He he was born in Moravia and was very active in the Catholic Church. He, in his journals, said that he used to kneel in the church and look at the candles and feel that he was on the precipice of understanding something magnificent and wonderful and grand. And so he had that kind of wonder in him. It was stimulated by his sense of religion. And he wound up moving to Paris and became kind of not a very popular book illustrator. And what happened is the most famous actress in Paris was Sarah Bernhardt. And something happened. She fired her poster designer last minute, needed a new poster for her stage play Gizmonda. And everyone else had gone home for the holidays, but this poor artist, young Alphonse Mucha, was stuck in Paris, 
slaving away in the print shop. And so he got the job because it was this last minute accident. He created his first poster for her and no one in the world had ever seen anything like it before. And overnight he was a success. Sarah Bernhardt hired him to be her full-time designer, costumes, jewelry, posters, anyone that had anything to advertise wanted Muka to, to advertise it. And so what happened is then for a few years, his dance card was completely filled. And by 1899, he was being, uh, uh, inquiries were coming from all corners about him helping represent them at the World's Fair in Paris in 1900. And he went to his printer and said, I've made a lot of money for you over these last five years. I want to make something that is a purely personal work printed in a very small edition. And then I want the plates to be destroyed so that you can't reproduce this ad infinitum because Muka would draw something and they would put it on biscuit tins and scarves and posters and, and everywhere. And he said, this is personal and it really needs to just be about the artwork and not the commerce. And that body of work was that he wanted to do a retelling of the Lord's prayer and take each line of the verse, illustrate it with what his sentiment was, uh, create a mandala that's filled with some of this Christian mysticism, a lot of Masonic imagery, and it's all very, very deeply coded, and it's all meant to be kind of an entry point to spiritual betterment. And it's the culmination of him starting in that church, kneeling as a child, moving to Paris and meeting philosophers like Strindberg and becoming part of that metaphysical philosophical scene that was happening in Paris at the time. It was very uh, obviously Paris in the 1890s was uh, a very vibrant time. And so then Alphonse Mucha created this as his love letter to the close of the century and wanted it to be the reason they printed it in December, 1899 is he wanted it to be released into the world at the start of the new century uh, intending it to be like a beacon of hope for the future, to kind of herald uh, the change of the old century to the new. Was he ever linked with any other famous mystical people from that time period? Uh, Strindberg, August Strindberg is someone that he was involved with. He used to, his studio was above a creamery, a uh, small restaurant, and she would let artists use uh, artwork as currency. And so Paul Gauguin was a regular there. August Strindberg was a philosopher that hung out there. And he introduced Muka to a lot of the ideas of what we would call metaphysical. And so then he wound up meeting a very famous military man named uh, Colonel Albert de Rochas. And the two of them began holding seances, uh, studies of automatic writing, all kinds of different explorations into elements of mysticism that were popular in late 19th century Paris. So you're saying that basically his production, this book is he takes one line of the Lord's prayer and paints it. And then the second line 
right? For each for each verse, he did three artworks. He did one that's kind of a mandala plate that's meant to be uh, meditative, and that has a lot of the Christian and Masonic imagery. Then he did a second plate that looks like an illuminated manuscript. And in that, he talked about what the verse meant to him. And so a lot of it is talking about themes that today don't seem avant-garde, but certainly did in Paris in the 1890s. The ideas that were all connected and that... uh, that his idea of God is very interconnected with nature and an all-encompassing presence and less uh, maybe traditional or hierarchical in, a, in, a, in the way that it would have been in Moravia in the 1860s when he was a child. And then the third is that he painted this dreamscape that's very Gustave Doré. They're very kind of dark and there's rivers of milk and people that are basically almost like cavemen looking up and there's an eye in the sky or there's a deity that's a, it's a female deity. Um, So it's interesting that in, in these illustrations, his perception of God is connected to the divine feminine. Um, Yes. The prayer is our father, but it's definitely not the white man with the beard. It's, it is very connected to the idea of, um, the mother is the nurturing energy. And I think his idea with that was that if, if God is indescribable, then how can you gender God? Um, if he's all things, you know, so in, in some cases it's, it's slightly masculine and some it's feminine. Um, but so that's what those third illustrations are is they're just very, uh, beautifully, beautifully drawn, and meant to be kind of more symbolic of a dreamscape of what that line represents to him. So your book contains those illustrations and more. Is that correct? Yes. So whenever, so Alphonse Mucha, there's there've been dozens and dozens and dozens of books written on Alphonse Mucha. And when you look at his books, you always see that they mention his masterpiece, Le Pater. And then they move right on to something else. And when I was younger, I would read this and I was like, well, where is this thing? Why are there no pictures? Why are they not discussing it? And then when I found a copy, which was probably 20 years ago at this point, uh, because they only printed 510, but I found a copy and it's magnificent, but it's very confusing because of the Masonic mystic uh, elements, because of... um, things that are extremely obscure biblical references, things that are really, really getting into the minutia of what he knew. Um, It took me so long to really, really understand the work that what was important then in this book is that we start in the 1400s with Albrecht Durer, who did uh, religious woodcuts. And he was using symbolism to, to have kind of coded ideas. That's not, you know, a unique idea, but he was kind of the first rock star of Christian mysticism and, you know, religious symbolism and mystical imagery. And so I take us through the 14th, 15th, all through the centuries and show how um, 
it's you know the 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 idea he who has eyes to see and he who has a mind to understand shall understand is a thread from the 1400s up until Mucha created La Pater. So I try to give the reader an arsenal of understanding sacred geometry and the Rosicrucian salons and hermeticism and masonry and Christian mysticism, so that by the time we get to Mucha, you're understanding everything the way he had hoped someone would. And it's all laid out in a very, very... It's not a book for experts. It was intended to be that, like, if you're an art lover and know nothing about spiritual writing, you'll pick it up easily. If you're interested in spiritualism and don't know anything about art, that's okay, too. It's fantastic, large images. Um, everything is very spelled out. And it's meant to be a very simple and enjoyable read the first time. And then if you choose to cycle through a second or third time, you'll find more each time. But I just, I know a lot of the, what we're talking about might sound technical and it's I just important I that it's, it's not an intimidating read. It's meant to be very fun, very romantic, very uh, empowering, very positive. It sounds like it has hints of the Da Vinci code within it, minus the mystery. Very much so. Very much so. One of the things that I saw when in, in some of these books about Mucha is, is one book said Alphonse Mucha made up all of these symbols, which is completely not true. That when you look in, especially uh, Masonic writings, you'll understand, oh, well, this symbol, you know, maybe it's a hammer with tree roots. It's a Cathar symbol and it, you know, comes from the Cathars in the 1600s and um, other elements of, of, you know, some of it's religious, some of it is theosophical, some of it is uh, Masonic, but everything in there does have a meaning that he did not invent. Now he put it together in a way that's breathtaking but it's very much like the Da Vinci Code in the sense of if you know what the keys are and then you look at the artwork, you can start to piece them together in a way that illuminates a larger narrative. So it's a very easy thing to look at and think of as beautiful, but it rewards further exploration. One thing I find interesting is Alphonse was a Catholic but he did all this Masonic stuff, which I thought Catholics and Masons were at odds with each other. And that's even why the Knights of Columbus is kind of like the opposite of the Masons. Yeah, Paris in 1900 was uh, very liberal. Um, also, because I'm, I'm not sure... Um, where his lines ended, but like, for, for example, like I'll give you one example, the thing that he wanted to do at the end of his life that he unfortunately never finished is he wanted to paint a series of large canvases based on the Lord's prayer. So his relationship with religion remained very strong. Um, I do know that when he returned to Prague after his success, he did open, excuse me, the first Czech-speaking Masonic Lodge. He became a 33rd level Mason. Um, 
so he was, yeah, the grand commander of whatever the name of that Czech thing was. I can't possibly pronounce it. Um, but he did maintain the ties to the church. I do know that in Prague, they were less fond of his multiple affiliations. When Le Pater was released in Prague, they released a sanitized version for the Czech market where some of the more broad thinking in the sensibility of self-empowerment, we're all connected, we're all one, any of that, um, what, you know, today doesn't sound crazy. Uh, They definitely removed all of that for the Czech market in 1900. And it's all very, very traditional. Uh, So I think that in, in Prague, I think they were a little rougher with it. I think that in Paris, you had people that were battling Definitely, there's people like Leo Taxil who, you know, were, were trying to pit the church and the Masons against each other. But I think Muka was just really a servant of beauty. And I think that he was able to, I think he was so successful and so well-liked that he was able to keep a foot in each of the worlds. I'm not sure exactly how popular the Masons were in Europe in the 1700s and the 1800s, but they had some foothold because even Mozart apparently was a Mason and the magic flute, that opera supposedly has a lot of Masonic imagery in it. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I don't know much about that era. I do know that it was not necessarily an easy thing to be in the 19th century. Um, a lot of what we talk about in the book is is some of like the Rosicrucians and the way they, uh, the Royal College um, was kind of a secret society element to it. So it was all of these famous scientists, but they were also studying Hermeticism and Masonic thinking. Uh, I don't think it, and I, I could be wrong on this. I'm really only aware of how it affected Muka. And I do think that that coincided with it becoming more popular in this very liberal time. You had a middle class for the first time in history. There was so much money in Paris. It was a center of intellect for the world that I think that things that would have needed to be hidden, maybe even just a few decades earlier, no longer needed to be. All right. Well, if you don't mind... Can we start with some of his work, like the very sure. first one of the Lord's Prayer? I'm curious to see what he created. Let me, uh, I'll do a screen share. This is an example of his advertising work mm-hmm. and the kinds of streets where it would be glued up. Just because I mentioned it, I'll, um, a lot of this artwork, this is the first artwork that he created that was the famous one. Mm-hmm. And that's Sarah Bernhardt, the performer. And so it's just very quintessential. um, Let me see if there's a better. But yeah, very, very quintessential French turn of the century. Like, you know, that's a good example of one of his designs. But so then his work, this is all the things, these were pavilions from the uh, World's Fair in Paris that he designed and decorated. And... The Lord's Prayer, this is the title page, 
And what you see is you've got the idea of this deity holding humanity in its hand. And it's definitely a deity that is a nature element. Uh, the idea that, you know, God is beyond figure and part of everything. And so then down the side here, you have these seven symbols. And each one of those then correlates to the verse. You've got the eye of providence, which is our father who art in heaven. And I'll just use that one as an example. And then I go into, I show the sketches, all of the, the work that he did to create this series. So then this image, uh, our father who art in heaven, you've got the tetragrammaton, which is the name of God, the Ouroboros, the eternal circle holding its tail. And then you've got an angel here holding an orb that is the cosmos uncreated. It's just a completely white orb. And the pomegranates here correlate to these stars. And it's just the idea of the void into which comes this name of God. And so he has it in Latin and in French. And then he follows that with, and here, here's his sketch. He follows that then with his, uh, a manuscript that again repeats the pomegranate I imagery but this is just something that he wrote and it's the idea that out of nothingness that man started to awaken and sense a higher power so it really is the idea of an entity of you know that predates mankind coming out of the primordial clay from the spark of life moving towards uh, the idea of God. Before you move on to that page, oh, yes. yes, I'm guessing that on the left side is the translation of what's in the artwork. That is correct. Yes, when it's in, when it's on these pages, it's my interpretation that reveals the coding. Mm -hmm. When it's something like this, where it's in quotes, and when there's words on there, uh, it is a direct translation. What so does? Can, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, just so you can read what he, you know, what he said. What does La Pater translate to? Uh, the father. The father, okay. The father. Our father. I mean, they, they, the prayer that we call our father in France, they call La Pater. Oh, okay. But it, 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 it's the father, but it's the possessive, our. Um, and then this is what uh, he did for the third plates. And these are really interesting in the sense of, it's not anything that occurs in reality, but he's got all of these people that represent humanity and they're kind of lumbering in the shadow. And then through the stones up in the sky, you see this all seeing eye mm. and the person who recognizes this, his arms are raised and he's illuminated in the warmth of that glow. And then the people who've not yet lifted their eyes to recognize the creator are now lumbering here in shadow and in darkness. So the all-seeing eye is the symbol of the creator. Yes. Do you think that's true of ancient Egypt? You know, the all-seeing eye or the eye of Horus, or perhaps the eye that you see on our dollar bill. Is that symbol always representing God? I'm not sure about on currency. I think that the idea that 
Um, the I is the opening to knowledge, meaning it is the way in which something comes to know is eternal. And I think that from the first point when people tried to articulate what a deity is, it's someone who knows. And so how do you reduce that to its essential element? And I would say that's an I. And so part of the nature of, of Christian symbology and Christian mysticism and and even things that relate to things other than, than Christianity, like Hermeticism and, and things like that, it really is about essentializing the ideas. And so in this case, I just kind of speculated that, but I, I do think that's why you will see in, in things like you mentioned with Egyptian ideology, that you'll see something like an eye consistently, because it makes sense. Like symbolism is a language that's truer than words, is, is the way that I would put it. And so when you're looking at something and you see, um, you know, uh, I mean, this, this, this artwork here is kind of a good example. You don't need to know anything, but you can see that the person looking here at the eye is clearly elevated and upraised, and the people that can't see that yet aren't. And so the way that we kind of like a beautiful song or maybe a poem or even just a memory that we have, there, there are things that are stronger than language. Um, and so I think that the idea of the, the eye, um, especially the eye in the pyramid representing the Trinity, that that is, um, you know, the, the I is eternal. I think the Trinity relates more to uh, to Christianity. So you like even this, the all-seeing I, what's displayed there is, I don't think that's a Christian symbol. I feel like that's more of a Masonic symbol. Uh, this one here is definitely just the I in the circle. And you're, you're right, but the elements, like here's one of his sketches. Um, and I can even go to the symbol, the eye of Providence, um, is, I mean, so many of these things cross over. And the other thing too, is like, when I think of the Masons, I don't think of them as, as, as being as separate from Christians or Catholics or, or anyone as, as perhaps might have been politically charged across the last centuries. All of the things that they're professing, that they're especially Mukha in this artwork, the foundation is the same. They're just applying things to it, um, like the idea of uh, sacred geometry, the idea that through balance and harmony that you can better understand uh, Catholic or Christian or whatever ideals. I feel like so much of, and this is really something that that I came to in the book, I feel like when you start getting into denominations, and even if you start getting into separating hermeticism from uh Rosicrucianism, and you start getting into all your isms, what's the common thread? The common thread is that we all want to be 
hopefully the best people that we can be and the best members of a community that we can be and be in touch with what lies beyond this world in whatever way we can. And for some, it's meditation. For some, it's uh, out-of-body experiences. For some, you know, whatever it is, that there is that common thread. And so really what Muka did with this that I think is really powerful is the idea here of the, the horde of angels flying around the cosmos or the eternal serpent uh, biting its tail or the idea of the burning heart or... Um, the wreaths of wheat, that all of it is connected to the idea that it's like the, the line from the poem, that the great and powerful play goes on and that we might contribute a verse, that we're all part of a much, much larger narrative. And that the quest for understanding the inside of ourselves and what lies beyond ourselves is really the only question that any of us have. And so Mooka's interest in spirit writing and, um, and astral projection and, and trance channeling and all of that is, is not separate from the part of him that was kneeling in that church when he was a boy. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's so I'm not able really effectively to separate those things, but what I can do is say that the idea that those things are connected uh, and that something like this in, as you pointed out rightfully, in kind of that Da Vinci Code kind of way, that if you want to look at something like this and just see beautiful lilies, you can. But, um, you know, the the cobra with the circle with the line through it, like that is... uh, it is a Masonic symbol that's the eternal egg of the cosmos. So the question is, well, how far do you want to go with it? You know, the angel holding the crown certainly says thy kingdom come in a very traditional way. And the lilies, of course, you know, the lily is the symbol of purity. You know, there's, these are all, those are very easy. I'm, and then again, that weird circle with the line through it. Well, most people might say, well, I just don't know what that is. And I'm here to tell you that's a Masonic symbol <laughs> for the egg of the cosmos. And so it does then, you know, you can take it a little further, which is part of why this book, I think, is so uh, inspiring. Does he have any artwork about astral traveling, automatic writing, anything that's more mystical besides the the my, Lord's Prayer? My favorite one in this whole book is his artwork for Lead Us Temptation, or I'm sorry, Lead Us, I was reading something else, Lead Us Not Into Temptation, But Deliver Us From Evil, is someone astrally projecting through the ether. And in this image, what we see is the idea that the soul is moving through the ether and that there is a spirit guarding it and that what lies beyond in the darkness might be all manners of hobgoblin or, or whatever could be there. But if you look the dragon's kind of tail 
can't get close because the shroud of this guardian entity is protecting it. And one of the things I love about this is it looks like a fantasy illustration from some science fiction pulp from the 1950s, Mm -hmm. but it was from 1899. And so it's, decades ahead of its time and so non-traditional in its represent representation of something that is normally portrayed as kind of a very uh ordinary idea so i really do love this one because you do have that um yeah that el- that element of of the astral travel yeah, i think it's fantastic it's too bad that he didn't even colorize it. I think that would even take it to the next level. He wanted for these to, to be, um, I mean, he did most of what he did was in color mm. for these. I know he was trying to make them feel timeless uh, and probably closer to like an old engraving or something. And so that's why when you look at the other works he did, they're very, very colorful. Like that's, you know, all of this watercolor that's in there is magnificent. But these, I think, were meant to just be kind of like a dream, you know, like what are the colors in a dream? And so the absence uh, making the other things in so incredibly vibrant, this is a little bit clouded in mist. And uh, I think that... that uh, over time that there's a really beautiful harmony to all of the artworks that he created that almost makes kind of a wheel. Like you get to the end and you get to his plate for Amen. And again, look at the vibrant color, Mm -hmm. but here now are all the symbols again, the pomegranate for our father who art in heaven, the bluebells for hallowed be thy name, the lilies for the purity of thy will be done. So he goes through then the seven symbols again, and it just completely circumvents this entity with the words amen. And then this is Latin for so be it. Hmm. Uh, And then that's right where it started. So it goes back to the beginning and it's just the circle just keeps going. So that is now that I'm thinking about it it is very Da Vinci codish in that the whole thing becomes this puzzle that you can, you're not done with it until you put the book down. And then when you pick it up again, there's a new puzzle for you to figure out. His artwork kind of reminds me of artwork that you would see in America in the 1920s. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it does very much. So he, so he, what what happened is that that France was kind of leading the world with color lithography at the turn of the century. A lot of the American design at that time was was kind of more like arts and crafts, oak furniture, more muted natural palettes. And the French got very vibrant. And what happened is after the World's Fair, it really then erupted into America. And things like posters printed with cobalt blue inks and chromium red inks that was a vibrancy that did not exist in america in the 1890s but by the teens and the 20s that kind of printing was very present so you're very correct and the reason is simply technological that we did not have the technology in america in the 1880s to 
put big color images like this all over. I think even the font of the letters also kind of reminds me of that 20s kind of text. Yeah, I mean, when you look back from the 21st century, a lot of it kind of bleeds together. And uh, academically, people can split hairs <laughs> over Art Nouveau mm -hmm. and Art Deco and the different right. things. Right. But there's definitely a really, really beautiful time that encompassed from like around 1890 to 1930 that was just magnificent. All of these fonts like you're talking about that were hand drawn. Uh, it was just a really rich time for advertising and advertising was not done on a computer, you know, like they mm -hmm. wanted to catch people's attention and they were really vibrant, beautiful uh, connections to life. Do you think Andy Warhol drew some of his inspiration from him? I think that Alphonse Mucha was, was very, very connected to nature and spirituality. I think that Andy Warhol was very comfortable with technology and humanity. And I mean humanity in the sense of, I think that he, he was approaching it from a cerebral point of view. And I think that Alphonse Mucha was a, approaching it from a, a spiritual and an emotional point of view. And I don't mean to devalue any emotional content of Warhol's work, but the rhetoric precedes the art for Warhol, meaning it's what you talk about and you think about in the discussions surrounding Warhol. Whereas with Alphonse Mucha, I think it's a lot more powerful in that 19th century way in that the contemplation doesn't need to happen for it to just be beautiful. And I guess you could say that to some degree about Warhol. If you look at one of his silk screens, you could hang a Campbell's soup can in your kitchen and say, oh, that's just a nice red can. And of course, then there's conversations to be had about the way he relates to modern art and the 15 minutes of fame and what do those things mean. But I think that they were, they probably would not have gravitated toward each other at a dinner party. Right. And I, mean, <laughs> I agree with you. I mean, of course, Alphonse's work to me is also much more detailed than his. I guess just kind of what gave me the idea is the poster board kind of look, you know, and it seems like some of Warhol's stuff was kind of poster boardish. Yeah, there's a much stronger connection to psychedelic rock posters. The artists in the 1960s were coming out of the, the minimalism of the 1950s and looking for something that was just a voluptuous explosion of color and, um, and line work and just uh, a romantic appeal to the senses. And so what happened is in San Francisco in, I think it was 1966, give or take a year, uh, there was a museum exhibition of... Art Nouveau posters. And those artists saw it and it connected so deeply to the interest in the nature resurgence. And that's the difference between A Hard Day's Night and Sgt. Pepper's, that brief couple year period. So when you look at the psychedelic rock posters, they were all fans of Alphonse Mucha. 
In fact, there are drawings of Mooka that were appropriated directly for posters. Um, you know, but it was that idea of trying to connect with nature that was happening right in the late 60s there too. And, you know, Warhol is very New York. He was very, uh, very smart, very, I hate to say cold, you know, but it was very big difference between New York in the 80s and San Francisco in the late 60s. Can you show us any artwork by Muka that's like over the top Masonic? So when he returned to Prague after he became very, very famous, uh, he this is a church he designed or a stained glass window he designed uh, for a church. And when you get then into these are some of his paintings but so this is Alphonse Mucha in his uh, regalia as a supreme grand commander in 1935 he's got the 33rd triangle there this is a membership certificate for the lodge that he designed Um, pieces like this aren't in any books if you have all 60 or 70 MUCA books that have been published the last century, things like this have never been printed in a book before. These were the hardest things to find, were the Masonic elements. And then I found a collector that had these. These are, this, these are the jewels for his lodge. And so this jewelry was designed by MUCA for his lodge. And, you know, all of them have... Masonic symbolism, the key, and this is another one here. And these are impossibly rare, impossibly rare. And then that's his, that's another one of his La Pater paintings, a study for one. And there's a picture of him with some of his large paintings late at life or late in life. Something that's, that's uh, sad is that he, he was targeted by the Nazis because of his Freemasonry. Hmm. He was very wealthy. He was very successful. He was very popular. And worst of all to them, he was a Freemason. Uh, but I think in terms of Masonic artworks, you, you couldn't get any purer than, than the jewelry he designed there is, let me see if I can find it quickly. One other thing that would be of interest to someone who had interest specifically in Masonic thinking is something that he did early on that I thought was great that I was able to locate. Where is it? I'm so sorry. Scrolling through on That's this. Okay. While, you're sc- he- while you're scrolling, do, would you consider him to be the greatest Christian mystical artist? I would probably, ha- that would have to be really Albrecht Durer. You know, this, this artist right here. Um, his work is in, here's St. John devouring the Bible. His work is represented in every museum in the world. And a lot of the artists from this era, like this is in the 1490s, a lot of these artists are, are kind of more anonymous. Sorry, I'm stammering here. Uh, but Albrecht Durer was really famous 
Whereas Muka is celebrated. This is what I was looking for. This is a, a, an apron he designed. Alphonse Muka's definitive relationship was with nature. Whereas Durer's relationship was with the Bible. So to say that about Muka would, would kind of be, you know, dismissing uh, the work that Durer did. And then, you know, you've got, when you talk about Christian mysticism, you've got artists like William Blake. Uh, talk about someone who was very crazy and very on the fringe of, of riding the edge of what was um, considered appropriate. I mean, he was celebrated, but he definitely got very strange. You can see he's got uh, David riding the angels here, being delivered out of the water. But then you've also got his artwork where he's holding the compass, which is a Masonic symbol. So, I mean, I'm kind of stammering a little because this is a whole other well to fall down. But the idea is that when you go from Durer, which was very devoutly Christian, but kind of with that Da Vinci Code type thing, then you get into William Blake, which gets very science fiction-y with it in terms of its very futuristic in its thinking. And then you move through the traditional artists like Doré, and then you wind up with Alphonse Mucha. And I'll show you this. This is something in the book. This is... Uh, a painting that he did when he was eight years old. So that's the first painting of his that the museum has. How do you think Muka has changed your life? I think that for me, I, I, I've been an art dealer for, for decades. And I don't particularly enjoy the commerce part of it. I love connecting people with the artwork. Um, and the commerce is just kind of a means to an end to that. I enjoy the exhibitions more than the sales is a way to put it. And so the thing that's nice about this book is that it was an ability, it was for me, the book gave me the ability to create what is basically an afternoon walking through a perfect museum exhibition. And so in the process then of creating this, in really immersing myself in a body of work that was so flush with unique imagination, so masterfully executed, and so full of spiritual optimism that I, I'm, I, was, I was a new father when I started really, really working on this. And so when you look at things in the world and it's very easy to become sad about perhaps the path that we think things are going or the divisions that we experience, there's a quote that Muka had in his journals uh, that spoke to me and I closed the book with it. And it says that over the course of, of the years, uh, it seems that, that the encroachment of, of, you know, whether it's goods or ills will rise and fall. And that 
we have to remember that in the end that that I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but in the end, that course arcs upward. And so keeping that in mind, and actually I'll just go to the quote so I can say it correctly, keeping that in mind and immersing myself in this body of work was extremely transformative. And it made me really mindful of my stewardship of, of myself as it meant for my son in terms of the examination of, am I being every day the best human that I can be? Am I embodying the things that maybe when you're a kid, you think or say, but are you really living your life that way? And so it would have been impossible for me to meaningfully analyze these artworks mentally if I wasn't doing it with my heart. And so that was, to me was the biggest transformative element of MUCA is that for, I mean, for, for, for 20 years, I studied it loosely for maybe eight years more seriously. And then it took me three years to write the book. And so the, the quote that he had is the progress of mankind proceeds by a winding, rising and falling path, like a temperature chart. It rises and then falls again, very far. But in the long run, it does, after all, rise. And so, yeah, to me, that was as transformative as it gets, that I ended up in a place where I understood what led him to write that in his journal. All right. Well, if someone wants to pick up a copy of your book, is this something that's sold like on Amazon or do they have to go to your website? I believe it's on Amazon. Uh you can, yeah, you can definitely get it on Amazon. You can also go to lepater.com, L-E-P-A-T-E-R.com, or centuryguild.net is my gallery, and there's copies there. Um, it's the same price in all places, and all orders come to the same address. So wherever you order it is fine. Um, but we we publish a lot of books that are about uh, different art and ideologies from 1880 through 1920. And if you go to the gallery website, centuryguild.net, there's a lot of interesting things there. Uh, and yeah, hopefully I should say this book is a very, very large book. It's 12 by 16 inches and it's incredibly heavy in about three weeks uh, soft cover edition is coming out. I've actually got the proofs right here, uh, but that's currently being shipped to us. So you can order either the hard cover or you can pre-order the soft cover and then they'll go out as soon as they arrive here. Uh, the hard cover is an extraordinary meditative experience, but because it's such a, a decadent book, it's a little pricey and the soft cover is meant to be an affordable option for people that want to get to read the words and look at the art uh, in a little more affordable way. All right. Now that you've finished this book, do you have anything else that you're working on that you want us to know about? There is, uh, interestingly enough, it is another MUCA book that we're doing. Uh, he, he illustrated a fairy tale called Ilse, Princess of Tripoli, that is filled with Masonic imagery uh, and it's never been translated. And so we have some of the original printing plates. And that's that's kind of our big project this year for publishing is going to be 
this this uh, new mocha book. But that's something that if you buy our book, you'll receive mailings about. Uh, and even if you're not sure if you're ready to get this book, if you go to our website, there's a place you can sign up to learn more about that. Have you ever seen those photos that are from different periods of history, 1500s and forward, I believe, maybe the earliest is 14 or 1500s that show UFOs in paintings? Yes, but I don't know enough about it to speak. Mm. I mean, I love it. My library is, I came into all of this because of my interest in metaphysics. And I mean, my library is, is an entire it used to be an entire floor in my last house and it's all, you know, UFOs and abductions and things like that. So I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. And I certainly recognize them in paintings. Um, but academically I'm not adept enough to, to meaningfully comment mm. on it. I mean, the thing that I think is, is interesting with that is that when you, something that I've noticed is when you look at books uh, and they talk about, you know, fairies at the turn of the century. So much of the language is the same, but the word, I, let me put it this way, the, the ideas are the same, but the language is what becomes different. That I do think that, that whatever your belief of what aliens are, I think that we've had some kind of interaction with some kind of other beings, but it, it predates. I think that saying that they're aliens is a way to relate it to the technological age. Uh, and that there might be a truer explanation that our language to this point still fails us on. And then in the 1900s, it would have been a fairy. In the 1950s, it would have been a little green man. And what will it be in 2100? I you know, I have theories, but, <laughs> but I love reading about that. And I've certainly spent a lot of time doing so. I made a movie about the first uh, UFO crash in American history, actually. That was, I made a short film called Aurora mm -hmm. that was about, so most, most people think of Roswell, but uh, the first documented UFO crash on American soil was in Aurora, Texas in the uh, late 1800s. Hmm. And so we made a short film that took basically all of the theories about what a UFO could be. And we found a way to weave it together in kind of a Twilight Zone episode hmm. kind of thing. So yeah, so I'm very, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, uh, an aficionado, but certainly not an expert. You probably still know more than I do. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's all over the world. You can look at the, the uh, Aztec cave paintings and there's things that clearly have engines and all of the strange uh, things that you do see in the background in paintings. And then things like wheels of fire that you see in religious texts. And, um, you know, the, I know I said this, but kind of to reiterate it, the thing that I just think is that, it's uh, it's like when you play the game of telephone and you whisper something to someone and then they pass it on and so forth. That, like, what language would someone uh, 
from the 1500s used to describe an iPhone. They would have nothing. The black mirror, like what would you call it? Like it would be something. And so to me, that's something that creatively is always fascinating to kind of consider what these things could mean, what those codings are. Unfortunately, uh, in this book, there are answers to the coding. In what we're talking about, there's only madness because you'll never, <laughs> we'll never know, not in our lifetime probably. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating. You've already gave us a fantastic quote, but can you leave us with one last positive message from him? You know, there's some pieces from his journal that I put in here and I'm going to cheat a little bit and uh, rush to those. Uh, see if I can find them. He kept a uh, a journal by his bedside. And so as part of his interest in automatic writing and spiritualism and seance and things like that, he definitely believed that when he dreamed that he was exploring other places, other realms. And so I love that he kept a journal just to make sure that he always could could jot down whatever idea uh, he brought back with him. And I am going to watch as my computer freezes and very quickly. Okay, here's some of them. Um, which is my favorite out of these? Uh, You know, this is actually a good one, and I'm going to explain it, why I think it's a good one. Something that I found, there was, I used to live in Chicago, and and on the house next to us, there was a, a gang that always hung out on the corner. And one of the guys had a little kid. And I just thought, man, this kid's got no chance of becoming like, connected to society in a meaningful way because of this culture that he's living in. And I always would say hi to this kid. I always made sure that I addressed that kid, made him feel special, made him feel important. I just, I did my best to, I should say. And I thought about like, what is it that we can do as public service to others? And I thought the thing that everybody that I know that's really emotionally present has in common is they have some appreciation of art, even if they don't understand it, they just, the idea that there's a world that's bigger than us. And maybe it's, and art can be books too. I don't mean that it's just visual art, but the idea that someone that died before you were born created something and that you care about that. And that someone who lives after you will care about something from today. Like that to me was like the seed of what I think is really important in my work. And so one of Alphonse Mucha's quotes um, that means a lot to me is that art enables us to impart our love to the world. So that is the quote that I would say I would. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you for sharing Alphonse Mucha with us. Thank you so much for, for speaking to me about it and giving me an opportunity to, to share to share my love with the world. All right, Thomas. Well, I wish you the best and I wish you massive success with your book. Thank you so much. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast.
I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.